play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. This is Your Last Meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell, and each week I chat with a celebrity about what they would choose to eat for their last meal. Then we explore the history of that dish, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, Don Wells. Now, you may think that you don't know who Don Wells is, but I guarantee that you do. Chances are you know the character that she played on TV, even if you haven't seen the show. Don Wells played Marianne on Gilligan's Island. I would like a world without strife, universal harmony, international goodwill, where the spirit of brotherhood enriches all of mankind forever. Thank you. Gilligan's Island debuted on CBS in 1964, and it wasn't long before the seven stranded castaways. With Gilligan, a skipper too, a millionaire. All became household names. Now, this is a very special episode of Your Last Meal because I scored not one, but three big interviews. Not only do I have Don Wells, who played Marianne, but we will check in with both The Professor and Ginger later in the show. But for now, let's hear from Dawn. I asked her what she was up to before becoming America's girl trapped on a deserted island next door. Well, what did I do before Gilligan's Island? Well, I mean, I did a million things before I was cast, but you don't know it. You right. Know, every 77 Sunset Strip, Surfside 6, Bonanza, every show that you could guest star on, I did right away because I was trained at the University of Washington. Oh, you were? Yes. I'm In acting? Graduate. Yes. And so you graduated I and graduated. then you went straight to Hollywood? Yep. I went to Stevens College, all women first, transferred to the University of Washington because of the theater department, went right to Los Angeles afterwards, and went right to work. Nice. So you got jobs immediately? Immediately. I saw that you were um, Miss Nevada in 1959, and then you went to the Miss America pageant in 1960. You know, it wasn't a beauty pageant. I entered it because they asked me to, and it was a scholarship to school. And I thought, well, let's see. I'm a drama major. Let's see if I can get up in front of all those people. And having no thought that I would ever win Miss Nevada, let alone Miss America. I'm too short and round. But it was a great experience. And it teaches there are ladies. And there's nothing wrong with being a lady. What Do you remember the question that they asked you, your big question and what your answer was? The question was, was what, what, what would you seek in a husband? <gasps> what did you say? All the right things. That was your answer? Well, honesty, character, good father material, dependable, handsome helps, but not a lot. Can you imagine if they asked that now, the internet would break in half? If they asked women what they look for in a husband. Why would it break in half? Because people would be so upset that it's not feminist enough to ask a woman you're supposed to focus on her and not who she marries. Nobody would ever ask that now. Or they could be gay. Well, how stupid are you to be a woman and not consider who you should be marrying? That's true. (laughs) It isn't just all about you. If you're going to have children, wouldn't you want a good father? That's true. Or Or a good supporter of your career, whatever it is. I mean, it's a mate that you're looking for. Right. Husband is not necessary, I guess, today. There was a chaperone with you every second. No falsies, no dyed hair. It was all pure the American girl back then. All natural. Mm -hmm. Is this a good time to mention that I've actually never seen an episode of Gilligan's Island? 
It's hard to tell people this without their jaws dropping. It was not a rerun that I ever remember coming across as a kid. But I have heard plenty about the whole ginger versus Marianne thing. Women categorizing themselves as either a Marianne or a ginger, and men clearly taking a stance on which of these women is more their type. So, of course, I had to reach out to Ginger for this episode. Hi, I'm Ginger. Unfortunately, Tina Louise, the woman who played Ginger Grant on Gilligan's Island, wasn't available. So instead, I got the next best thing. I interviewed my friend's nine-year-old daughter, whose name is Ginger. I was named after Ginger Rogers, who was a famous dancer, I believe. Oh, yes. Dancer, actor. It's actually kind of a cool story. Ginger was named after Ginger Rogers. Her mom, who's my friend Natalie, was named after Natalie Wood. And her mom, Janet, was named after Janet Lee from the movie Psycho. Kind of an ode to old Hollywood, which is perfect because Marianne is basically old Hollywood. And I felt a little bit less culturally irrelevant after meeting Ginger because she hasn't seen Gilligan's Island either. What do you think it's about? I have no idea. If you had to make it up, if someone said make up a show called Gilligan's Island, what would you say that it was about? Um, I would think it's about some people going to an island and getting trapped at an island called Gilligan's Island. It's pretty close. That's kind of what happened. They did get stuck on an island. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a good guess. All right, so Ginger's going to pop in just every now and then and provide us with some facts about Ginger. Ginger has a long history of relieving digestive problems such as nausea, loss of appetite, motion sickness, and pain. So pour yourself a glass of ginger beer, and we will be right back with Don Wells' last meal. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. All right, we're back with sweet all-American Marianne, a.k.a. Don Wells, and her last meal. What would your last meal be? Roast wild duck, wild rice. You're wild. Well, well my father was a hunter, and I, I, I like deer meat and all of that. I couldn't shoot anything, but um, always a good vegetable. Asparagus, maybe. Great big salad. Maybe a martini. That's good. When was the last time you had roast wild duck? It's been a while. I can remember. <laughs> I lived in Nashville for a while, and my uncle would hunt, and they'd take the duck, that, that, and they'd put it in water and put it in a a milk carton and freeze it. And I would take two of them in a bag and put it under the seat of the plane. And by the time we'd landed, the ice was melting. <laughs> the ducks were thawing out. I only did that for a year or two. You're probably the only person on the plane traveling with wild fowl. <laughs> That's right. You couldn't go through security. Now they'd wonder what if you got frozen in that milk carton. Wow. So, so yeah, so when you were a kid, your dad would hunt. And you is that what you guys ate primarily for meat was the things your dad hunted? Well, and my parents were divorced. So I, I, I'm a fisherman. 
a real fisherman. I did a fishing show all over the world, fly fishing. And so I, I spent a lot of time in Idaho fishing. I've never gone hunting. I was skeet and trap shoot a little bit. But um, yeah, we, we ate a lot of that. Yeah. Do you still eat that way? Do you ever? No, I don't know anybody that hunts. And I don't know that. I, no, I don't. So this meal, what is the significance behind it then? It sounds like it's kind of a nostalgic meal. Well, there's nothing like wild duck. The, the flavor is kind of, and I love wild rice. I don't know. There's so much more now. All this Asian food now, all this the, this fusion that I've never seen before. I grew up in Reno. We didn't have a fish store even. So it's so different now. Everything is instant. Everything is frozen. I like to cook. I'm a good cook. I like to cook. That's what a I lot of Italian. I mean, I'm Italian, so I cook a lot of the pasta stuff. If you were doing something special and having people over, what would be something that you're like, Ugh. Well, I have a little meatloaf that I found in a recipe not very long ago, and it's a meatloaf with orange juice and, and green apples in it and everything, and then you cover it with chutney. And it's a very interesting flavor. And I think, why couldn't you make meatballs and do that for an hors d'oeuvre? With yeah. orange juice and apples in the meatballs. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Notice the use of the word interesting. I've been told before that using the word interesting to describe food is not exactly a compliment. But I love how Dawn thinks that Asian food is exotic, uh, but she doesn't bat an eye at putting orange juice and green apples inside of a meatloaf. But getting back to the wild duck that she talks about, there is a very interesting psychological thing at play here. Dawn chose wild duck for her last meal, a duck ideally hunted by her father, but she's pretty much opposed to hunting. I'm not into killing animals, but that's I, that's what my history was, exactly. Right. I've never seen him kill an animal. I have a hard time taking a fish off, and I did a fishing show all over the world, and I can remember my mother had had a stroke, and I was in Iceland, and I had this beautiful big salmon in my hand. My mother, I didn't know what the doctors were saying, and the, and the fish was gasping for breath. I burst into tears, let the fish go, and said, give me an hour, I can't do this. So when I held that life in my hands. I related to what was going on in my life. So I don't think I could ever kill anything. I don't know that I could even fish again. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Interesting. When was the last time you fished? Uh, About eight or nine years ago. I did a fishing show all over the world. So I was up in Alaska with, with whales and dolphin jumping and bringing in the big salmon. I think this is such a fascinating dichotomy. Don says she could never kill anything and she's not into animals being killed in general. Yet her last meal is wild duck. And this just shows how strong nostalgia can be. It all seems to come back to her dad and the ducks that he would hunt. Well, to help me sort out the philosophy and ethics of all this, I consulted with the professor. Hiya, professor. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. You must be awful nervous. Well, I'm not nervous, Gilligan. I didn't realize you were here and you startled me. Hiya, professor. You see, you are nervous. You jumped even when you knew I was here. (laughs) Unfortunately, I have tricked you once again. We do not have the professor from Gilligan's Island, but I did chat with a professor, Professor Karen Emmerman, who teaches the ethics and philosophy of eating animals at the University of Washington. And unlike me and Ginger, she has watched Gilligan's Island. When I was a kid, the professor seemed like this really lovely human who was just genuinely working really hard to solve all of their problems and who came up with these really creative solutions. I was thinking on the way over here, he made these washing machines. They could cycle on these cycles made of, I don't know, bamboo or something. And then they would cycle on them and it would turn the washing machine. And he made that possible. And, you know, totally willing to get his hands in there and solve the problem. That's how I remember him. Though most of us professors aren't really maybe like that. All right. So before we get started, I must mention that Karen is a living, breathing vegan. I feel like I know so many vegetarians who say they're vegetarian, but they eat fish. So how does that work psychologically and morally and ethically? How do you decide what you eat, what is worthy of killing and what is not worthy of being killed? Wow. So I could write an entire dissertation for you on that. Gosh. So I think lots of people get their 
in lots of different ways. So I've also met the quote unquote vegetarian who eats fish, which I find puzzling. And I think for some people, right, lines are drawn in interesting places. So around fish, some people have the belief that fish don't have the capacity to feel pain, which is not correct, but that's a proliferating idea in the world, right? So they draw the line at sort of like they won't eat chicken, but they'll eat fish because they think fish can't feel anything. Some people draw the line because fish seem so radically, radically different from us, right? Because they're aquatic animals. They don't look a thing like us. They don't have legs, right? They don't have the same sort of physical structures. And so people just find it easier, I think, to think of them as other than. And so they feel comfortable eating them on those grounds. That's, I'd say, probably the two most common reasons I hear that people eat fish, but not other animal flesh. Is there something about things being cute and fuzzy that makes people not want to eat them? Yes. I think cuteness is a huge factor. In fact, I do philosophy with children, and we often talk about how cuteness impacts how we think about animals and who we care about. And that works in the human world too, right? We tend to have more sympathy and compassion for people who we find physically appealing. I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but that's the way it often is, right? Um, And so similarly, I do think it's true that in the animal world, we find ourselves feeling more compassion and more connection to the animals who we think are cute and fuzzy as opposed to the animals who seem it's hard to imagine cuddling a fish, right? And so maybe it's harder to turn on the sympathy there. I just heard that babies are really cute so that you won't abandon them so that <laughs> the human race can go on. And even right. though they cry and they do disgusting things that you still will take care of them. Is there any kind of flaw as far as, you know, we're supposed to eat animals, right, as humans, but then were we supposed to find them cute and not eat them? Like, is that something, how did that come about with our brains and our society? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've never thought about that one. I don't know, but it does seem to, I don't know if we were, I think, mm, let me try to be articulate. Okay, so I think we made a distinction early on, at least in the Judeo-Christian tradition, where there was this idea of dominion over the animals, which then in some, to some extent, I think circumvented the cuteness issue, right? If you have dominion and you're superior to everybody else, then you can get over the cuteness issue. Part of what helps in the baby case is that we think of ourselves as morally equivalent to the baby, right? So you got the cuteness plus the moral equivalence. But if you take the moral equivalence away and all you have left is the cuteness plus a whole lot of ideas around who's better and whose lives are more important, then I think you end up in a situation where we're eating you. Oh, wait, sorry. We got like... Oh, yeah. We were going to talk about Don Wells and her hunting. Yes. So she wants to eat the wild duck and the wild rice. She doesn't fish anymore, and she wouldn't eat a fish that she caught. I don't think so. So some of this sounds like nostalgia, like for her last meal, she has a nostalgic connection. Right. And culture and nostalgia play such an important role in how we think about our food choices. And some of it sounds like there's a difference for her, at least psychologically, maybe not morally, but psychologically between the animal dying at her hands and the animal dying at someone else's hands. And that doesn't sound like a moral distinction to me. That sounds like a emotional or psychological distinction. I was just thinking about the nostalgia piece, because this comes up, right? In Jonathan Safran Foyer, when he writes about his grandmother's chicken soup, there's actually a lot of us Jews out there who are vegetarians. I'm not one of them, but who are vegetarians and say, but I eat my grandmother's chicken soup because of the nostalgia, but also because of the relationship and how these kinds of foods become tied to our relationships with other people in these really important ways that I, as an ethicist, don't want to ignore. Plenty of other ethicists think... It's just trivial. I don't think it's trivial. I also think you shouldn't eat the chicken soup. And I also think Marianne probably shouldn't, you know, she shouldn't eat the wild duck. I just called her Marianne. Don Wells shouldn't eat the wild duck. But I understand the pull. And I do think there's moral work to be done there in helping ourselves and if the other people are still alive, the relationships with them when we pull away from eating those foods. 
but I still think we don't get to eat them. Nostalgia plays such a huge role in eating. Years before I started this podcast, when I was already obsessed with the question of last meal, I interviewed a bunch of Seattle chefs about what their last meal would be. And these are people who have access to the fanciest ingredients. They've eaten their share of fine dining and they've traveled around the world eating exotically. But not a single one of them chose anything fancy. It was always their mom's meatloaf or their grandma's waffles, something a family member cooked for them as a child or maybe a dish they had on a really memorable trip. But some things are better left in the land of nostalgia. I have tried revisiting foods from my childhood that just don't taste the same, either because my palate is expanded or because the food was only good because it was attached to a memory or a place or a time. I can sum all of this up in two words. Something I ate all the time as a teenager that just does not work as an adult. Taco Bell. But back to the professor, I wanted to talk a little bit more about vegetarianism because we do have teeth equipped for eating meat. Uh, so doesn't that mean we're supposed to eat meat? So I was wondering where the idea of vegetarianism came from if it was societal. And Professor Emmerman says she doesn't know the science of vegetarianism, but she does know about the ethics. I can't say I think there's many things the human body is designed to do that we, re- we refrain from doing. Right. So I have arms. They're perfectly capable of, you know, punching someone in the face if I dislike what they've said to me. But I refrain from doing that on moral grounds, right? And so I think similarly, whatever our body was designed for, over time, right, there has been a growing awakening to the idea that other animals are loving, caring creatures with the capacity to feel pain and suffering whose lives matter to them. All these things that, you know, we thought were horrific in the past, uh, like slavery or even the idea of gay people not getting married. I keep wondering what in the future are we going to look back on and just think is terrible that we did to animals? Because we think, like you said, a lot of people, oh, they don't have the brain capacity. Like maybe they actually feel more or know more than we know. Like, how could we possibly know what they're thinking and feeling? Yeah. And there's been a lot of lot of research on this, on what's going on in other animals' minds and what it's like to be them. And we're finding out more and more about the fact that what it's like to be them is actually much more complicated than humans ever thought. And there is a worry, at least amongst many of us who work in animal ethics, that humans have a real hubris around this sort of idea we have that we can understand what's going on in the minds of other animals. And we also have a tendency to measure them to our bar. So we're like this, right? We can do complex mathematical equations and cows can't. Or we can make plans for the future, but a chicken can't make a plan for the future because they don't have the concept of time in the future. And somehow we've decided, right, that's what matters. But why, right? If I'm a chicken and I love being with my chicken friends, doing my chickeny things, eating the foods that I love to eat and taking care of my young ones, then why does it matter, whether I can do right complex logical puzzles or what have you. I hope, it's my hope that over time we will look back and see, like, whoa. And then there's so many things that animals can probably do that we can't, yeah. that we don't value. Right. I always think about that with my the animals that I live with, right? Where I'm, I think like, God, you can see so well at night. And I can't see at all, right? I can't see at night. I have to turn on the lights. It's such a drag. But my cats can see everything they need to see at night. Why don't we value that? That seems like a really good talent to have, like a good gift. But we don't care about that one. Humans have this tendency to say, we want you to be like us in these ways that we've identified as the most important ways, that you need to be like us in order to matter. And you're not like that. So you're out. For the record, even though I do enjoy these sorts of philosophical conversations and I do sympathize with animals, I'm a total hypocrite because I do eat meat and I will continue to eat meat out of pure selfishness because I think it's delicious. 
We're going to take a quick break, but first, another quick ginger fact from Ginger. Did you know that only 1% or 2% of people around the world have red hair? We'll be right back. listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. We are back with a few last words from Don Wells. What do people say to you? Are there catchphrases or things that they want you to say or things they want you to do? No, they all want to marry me. I love Marianne. They all love Marianne. Marianne was a good character. She what was, do you think you have in common with her? A lot. I was born a Marianne. My mother manners, and, and she was a team player, and she would help out, and she wasn't a bit jealous of Ginger, and she was buddies with everybody. She's, she's what we should all be. She just was a good friend. And that was Don Wells' last meal. Now this is the tale of our castaways. They're here for a long, long time. If you are a Gilligan's Island fan, pick up her cookbook. It's called Marianne's Gilligan's Island Cookbook, which is hard to say because there's a lot of apostrophes in that title. She had other actors from the show contribute recipes to the book. Uh, recipes like Bob Denver's poop poop doo dip Bob played Gilligan, and this recipe is oh so vintage. It includes cream cheese, pineapple tidbits, water chestnuts, and pecans. Thanks to our professor, Karen Emmerman, philosophy professor at the University of Washington, and special thanks to nine-year-old Ginger Fritas. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and myself. Original music by Prom Queen. And in podcasting, it's the reviews that make our world go round. So please subscribe to the podcast. Please leave a review on iTunes, especially if you're a personal friend of mine and you haven't done this already. If you want to come to my next birthday party, you know what you need to do. I'm Rachel Bell. I'm Ginger. And this is your last meal. I'm Rachel Bell. I'm 37. And this is your last meal. Friends, you're sure to get a smile. From seven stranded castaways here on Gilligan Island. Why did the chicken cross the road? Why? To get to the taco stand on the other side. <laughs> I know for a fact that Rachel likes tacos.